Hey friends, I'm Allie O'Grady and welcome to Thoughtful Human, the podcast. I'm excited to be back and bringing you some new episodes with amazing guests who are going to help us all figure out how to talk about some more really difficult subjects. We're starting out today with a discussion about suicide. First and foremost, I want to offer a trigger warning. I know this is an incredibly painful subject for many, and I encourage you to consider and care for your mental health first and only listen to this episode if and when you have capacity for this subject matter. Now, I don't think I have to tell you that suicide is a really serious issue, but I am going to share some quick stats to highlight why we're focusing on it today. According to the CDC data for the United States, suicide accounted for almost 46,000 deaths in 2020, with 130 people dying by suicide on average every day. That's one person every 11 minutes. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for ages 10 to 19, the second leading cause of death for ages 20 to 34, and the fourth leading cause of death for ages 35 to 44. A recent study suggests that for every suicide loss, there are about 135 other people who are impacted. Adults between the ages of 45 and 54 are particularly high risk and account for almost 80% of all suicide deaths. So yeah, Those are some really heavy numbers that illustrate the breadth of this problem and why all of us need to understand how to talk about this subject. But our guests today are going to remind you that suicide is very often preventable. Most people who consider suicide do not actually die by suicide. And most people who survive a suicide attempt do go on to engage in life again. And there is so much we can do to help. In this episode, we discuss vocabulary, common misconceptions, prevention strategies, firearms, postvention, and the complex nature of grief related to suicide loss. To teach us all about this, we're joined by Dr. Meredith Sears and Brittany Elko. Meredith is a clinical psychologist who specializes in suicide prevention, lethal means safety, and dialectical behavior therapy. She earned her doctorate at UCLA and today works at the San Francisco VA and serves as the president of the board for the Greater San Francisco Bay Area Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Brittany, our second guest today, is an engineering professional and avid volunteer within the suicide prevention community. Brittany has experienced a personal loss by suicide and has since served on the board of directors for AFSP's San Francisco chapter. She also leads the Healing Conversations program, connecting those who have lost someone to suicide with resources and others who've been through a similar type of loss and has served as a 988 top crisis line volunteer since 2016. While this subject matter is undeniably intense, I can tell you that I left this conversation feeling really hopeful and way more equipped to tackle this subject within my own relationships and community, and I hope you have the same experience. With that, please enjoy Dr. Meredith Sears and Brittany Elko. So thank you so much, Meredith and Brittany, for being here today. I am really excited to speak with you about a subject that is so, so difficult and impacts so many people that I know and so many people at large. Uh, Before we get started, uh, can you both please share your pronouns? Um, This is Meredith. I use she, her pronouns. Brittany, and I use she, her as well. Okay, great. 
Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of different areas and perspectives related to suicide, but I think it would be really helpful for our community to get to know both of you a little more personally first. So as you're comfortable, can you please share your connection to the subject and how you came into this line of work? Sure. Um, this is Brittany. So um, I lost my younger brother, Derek, in 2015 to suicide. Um, before that happened, I think I hadn't had a lot of exposure to, to that type of loss and it hit our family really hard. Um, and at the time I didn't really know anyone who had been through anything similar. So I think a lot of people can relate It just, you feel very alone in your grief um, and not really being able to relate to anyone else's type of loss. Um, and so since then, you know, I've gotten more involved with volunteer work related to suicide and mental health and just really trying to reduce the stigma around the topic. And so I think, you know, doing things like this, like talking about it on a podcast or just one way I can help with that. Yeah, absolutely. And Meredith? Yeah, um, I am a psychologist and I've specialized in suicide prevention for the last 10 years or so. And early on um, when I you know, was in my graduate training, um, I started learning about how to do different types of therapy that can help for people who experience suicidal ideation pretty regularly. And over time, I have gotten really passionate about how not only to prevent suicide, but more importantly, how to help people live lives worth living so that they don't feel suicidal anymore. And addressing those mental health concerns that can help people there that can make people feel really stuck and like they don't have any options. And now I work at the VA where um, I work in suicide prevention specifically. And one of the things that I do is help therapists who both are working with patients who are feeling suicidal and the therapist is feeling stuck um, or after if a patient dies by suicide, helping therapists kind of work through that and figure out how to navigate that loss, um, which is a a complex process. I mean, as Brittany will attest to, suicide is a, a really complex um, way to lose someone. And um, that's certainly true for therapists as well as family members and loved ones. So um, that's become a passion of mine, really helping people work through those losses um, in addition to helping reduce suicide. Well, thank you so much for both of you for the work that you do. It is absolutely one of the most complex and difficult things for so many people to navigate. And for that reason, a lot of people don't have conversations about this. And that's why we're here today. And really what Thoughtful Human does, you know, we look at a lot of different issues around mental health, around grief, around addiction, all kinds of different subjects. And where we kind of really focus is like, how do we help people overcome these, these really initial barriers to a conversation and to making a connection in any of these domains? And so often I find that that comes down to a, just a real literal lack of vocabulary, afraid of saying the wrong thing. So we're saying nothing. To start off here, I want to kind of just get into some of that language. You know, even, you know, there's a whole loaded conversation around uh, the term that's still very commonly used, which is committed suicide. Can you talk a little bit about um, the alternatives that you use and the ways in which those can be helpful as people start to approach these kinds of conversations? Yeah, so I think this is one that's really hard because until I had lost someone to suicide, I didn't know that that was a taboo word either. And now 
with my involvement with AFSP and working on the crisis line, you know, I went through lots of training where they tell you, you need to say died by suicide, like committed implies it was a criminal act. We don't really want people to be viewed that way that we, we love and lost. So, I mean, that's the one that I like to use now. And I try to educate people with that, that I work with through the different programs and just interactions, but it's hard. And, you know, I think the media is getting better at it. Like every time I read a news article now, I see that phrase died by suicide being used more and more. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but I think if we can even just use that as a first step, it'll make a big difference with a lot of people for making them feel okay to talk about the loss and not like the person they loved was doing something evil or criminal in the way that they died. One of the things that we're really trying to encourage in general is having um, sort of increasing people's courage in talking about suicide and using really bold, very clear, um, real language and not beating around the bush. One of the things that happens, especially if you're, you know, a layperson, you're you're wanting to talk to someone about suicide, but you have no expertise, you have no training, um, is that it's a very anxiety-provoking topic, it, and that can lead people to using very vague language and kind of beating around the bush and um, saying things like, you know, I'm worried about you or Are you okay? And not using that really clear language like, Have you been thinking about suicide? Have you been thinking about killing yourself? And I think one of the reasons we want to encourage people to use really clear, explicit language is one, it makes you look like you know what you're talking about. It makes you look like you're ready for this conversation. You're confident. You're not coming in really panicky. And that can be very reassuring to the person you're worried about um, that you know they can talk to you. Even if you don't feel confident, I always encourage people to sort of sound as confident as you can because um, the second reason why I think that language is really important is because um, that person is already dealing with a lot of challenges. That person is already dealing with the stigma of even thinking about suicide, mental health challenges. And so we don't want to burden them with having to break through that stigma. Um, we want to kind of show that we can handle talking about this topic. Um, so even I think in addition to using the language like died by suicide instead of committed suicide or um, you know made a suicide attempt, we really want to just show that we can talk about suicide and it's a safe enough topic. We're not going to panic and we want to handle that stigma on our end as the listener and as the concerned um, loved one rather than letting our loved one have to kind of break through that stigma themselves and bring up the topic of suicide themselves. So is died by suicide the preferred within the organization? Do, I've also heard died by depression. Is there one or the other that you tend to lean towards? Personally, I'd lean towards died by suicide, I think, and I'll defer to Brittany um, as well. But I think when we talk, again, when we use kind of euphemisms, mm -hmm. it communicates that we're not able to talk about this topic and that it's not okay to talk about this topic. And for a lot of lost survivors, I've heard so many times, no one said, I'm sorry, your, your child died by suicide, or I'm sorry, mm -hmm. your parent died by suicide. People sort of, again, just beat around the bush and and they, it's like they can't talk about it. And if they can't talk about it, you don't feel safe talking about it. And as a lost survivor, I think that sort of prison of silence can feel really painful. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think using the word suicide is important. Like one, just to acknowledge the person's loss, but two, for other people, like Meredith's talking about, they may be having thoughts of suicide themselves. Like the less we use that word, the less likely they're going to raise their hand and say they need help. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And just demonstrating, like you said, your capacity and willingness to go there and that that's not a subject that, that you're shying away from. Uh, so in our group conversation that we had, Meredith, you called out a distinction between prevention and postvention and the ways that we talk about suicide differently, depending on who we're talking to and where we're at. Can you clarify the distinction there and why that's really important? Correct me if this isn't what you're talking about, but um, suicide prevention is anything you're doing to help someone stay alive. So any kind of intervention you may be doing to support someone who's having mental health challenges, you know, to help them get connected with care, or if you're helping someone who's had a suicide loss, who may be at risk themselves. Um, Suicide risk increases after a suicide loss. And so sometimes with a loss survivor, we're doing suicide prevention as well. Postvention is any kind of intervention after somebody has already died by suicide and you're working with loved ones, you're working with maybe clinicians who worked with them to help support them. There's a lot of complex reactions that people have after a suicide that take a little bit of special care. Um, It's not the same as losing someone to an illness or um, other reasons you might be in grief. And so um, postvention can help provide support to people who have already had a suicide loss. Thank you. That was what I was referring to. And just as we continue this conversation, we're going to be talking about different different sides of this. And it was something that came up that was really interesting when one of the group members said that the phrase suicide is preventable and you know, even the name of the organization, that that was really painful for some people as a lost survivor versus the approach when you are obviously talking with someone in crisis and want to encourage them to seek help. Yeah, I think there's a real tension between the messages that we provide people when they're struggling with suicidal thoughts, or if you have a loved one struggling with suicidal thoughts, which is suicide is preventable. Um, It's not an inevitable conclusion of any kind of mental health condition. Many, many more people experience suicidal thoughts than ever make an attempt. Many more people make attempts than ever die by suicide. And so just looking at the raw numbers, we know that having a mental health condition is by no means, you know, just a one-to-one correlation with a suicide attempt. And, um, and even suicidal thoughts are not, you know, indicative that someone is necessarily going to die by suicide. And there are a lot of interventions we can offer for people who are struggling with suicidal thoughts. We can help them, you know, get connected with therapy. We can help them get connected with medications. We can provide um, support for the, whatever challenges they're going through, if those are um, financial or family related, So there's a lot we can do on the front end to help prevent suicide. At the same time, when people lose someone to suicide, hearing that suicide is preventable is incredibly painful. And the reality is, I don't think we'll ever eliminate suicide, right? I mean, people struggle. And so sometimes suicide is something that, you know, 
everybody did everything they could and someone still died. And that's the reality, right? That's the reality of the human condition is we can do a lot and we can't do everything. And so sometimes what's most comforting to a loss survivor is being able to sit with this was this was a choice that this person made and I and it's painful and I miss them and I'm struggling with that choice and it wasn't something that I could have prevented you know by any simple means and maybe I never could have prevented it so there's a tension um, between this um really proactive and very active attitude of suicide prevention um, before someone dies and kind of the reality that we have to sit with after we lose someone to suicide. Yeah, I see that on both sides of what I do as well, because I volunteer for the talk line, now 988, where I answer those calls and I'm trying to talk to these people and you know convince them that their life is worth living. But then on the other side with healing conversations through AFSP, you know, we, we have um, people who have lost someone to suicide reaching out to us for conversations. And so on that side, I think it's important to validate their feelings. You know, a lot of times people will be really angry, you know, at the person that they've lost. And I don't know that you experience that a lot with other types of loss, you know, when someone dies from cancer or in a car accident, you're not necessarily angry at that person or, Um, you know, there may be like some self-blame depending on the circumstance, but, you know, a lot of times, a lot of people go to calling the person selfish, um, which I really take issue with. Um, And so that's one piece of advice I give to someone who is talking to someone who's, who's lost someone to suicide. It's like, don't try to, you know, define the person or understand, you know, they weren't in a logical place when they made the decision. So we can't really try to think through what they were thinking and call them selfish. Um, I think that's really insensitive. So that's one thing I try to tell people um, that I'm working with to try to not go to that, that immediate characterization of a person. And like, like Meredith said, just try to be with them and acknowledge that this sucks, like it hurts and we miss them. And as much as we want them here, they didn't want to be here, you know? So our, our wish for them to be here wasn't enough to keep them here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are a ton of misconceptions around suicide. Um, the selfishness piece, one that I hear a lot, some other ones are about people wanting attention, concern that someone will always be suicidal if they have expressed any amount of suicidal ideation. Um, what are some of the other misconceptions that you hear and how can we help people understand the, the true nature of depression and how someone develops suicidal thoughts? For me, I mean, I see the biggest difference in, in the people that I talk to on the crisis line. We have what we call regular callers that will literally call the line every day. And that's part of their, you know, therapy and, and they're probably not a high risk for suicide because this is what they've developed as their coping mechanism. And so I'd say the biggest difference in the people that struggle with mental health, depression, anxiety, other mental illnesses that go on to end up dying by suicide is they didn't find a way to deal with that and they didn't find coping mechanisms um, and other people do. So I think that's one misconception that I've seen a lot of is people that find a way to live, like they're still living with the depression and with the 
with the uh, mental illness, but they just know how to get through the day. It, you know, for them, it doesn't necessarily go away, but they find a way to deal with it and manage it. And some people just can't. One of the really common misconceptions I hear and see, especially in the media, is this idea that suicide is a fairly simple act. Often we sort of see the tip of the iceberg, right? So someone has a divorce or they lose their job and then they die by suicide. And so people on the outside draw the conclusion, right? That that's what caused the suicide. And it's never that simple, right? I mean, there are biological predispositions, there are long-standing mental health challenges, there's whether they had access to lethal means in the moment that they were in crisis, their ability to regulate their emotions, their ability to manage, you know, long-standing mental health concerns, whether they were intoxicated or not at the time that they made the attempt. Um, all of these things can contribute to um, whether someone becomes suicidal or whether they die by suicide. And so it's just not simple. And so that's one of the big misconceptions I see and I think can lead to a lot of the judgment that Brittany has mentioned that, you know, if only they had just solved that problem or asked for help, um, then they wouldn't have died by suicide. And it's never that simple. And so I, I do, I do have many of those conversations too, where I just say, we got to give someone a little bit of grace. They were struggling and that's suicide is never someone's first, first choice of a solution to pain that doesn't feel like it's going to end. And so if you're feeling like they're just asking for attention or um, they're being selfish, a lot of times that's more about our frustration about how people communicate their pain. People don't always communicate it in the most effective or um, understandable way, but it's never the first choice. And so if somebody's communicating their pain that way, whether it's effective or not in terms of the way they're communicating it, that probably means they've tried other things that haven't worked and they really are struggling. So we try to just take people seriously and no matter how they're communicating, sort of say, okay, like, regardless of whether you mean it or, you know, whether this is a, um, this is how you cope, we're going to take it seriously and we're going to do what we need to, to give you some support. One I got a lot when I would talk about my brother was when I told people it was suicide, they would say, oh, was he on drugs? Like I got that so many times and yeah, I don't know. That was another one that I, I don't know if that's as common, but I feel like people just like Meredith said, jump to like, oh, there was something else going on that caused them to make this rash decision. They weren't in like the right state of mind at the time. And that's definitely a misconception. Do you have any thoughts or have you, has this come up in other circumstances where you found something, a way to kind of put space there for people who are nosy or are curious, which to one extent, I think that's a, a, human quality and people who don't understand the sensitivities really a lot of times don't have the awareness of how harmful that can be to people who are struggling. You know, any just actual verbiage that you think might be helpful to let people know that or that we could just start to promote as we talk about suicide within our community? Do you mean when people are talking with someone who's um, had a suicide loss? Yes. Um, this one's hard because I don't have a problem sharing what exactly happened just because I want, like I said, to destigmatize it. I think some other people, you know, I think 
asking how someone died is always going to be the question. And I think if someone tells you it was suicide, I think the, the life lesson I've heard from other people that I've talked to that have lost loved ones to suicide is like, okay, take it at that. Don't ask more details about what happened. And so just kind of saying, oh, I'm so sorry. And treating it like any other death, like they were sick, you know, they were, they were struggling. They just like any other physical illness, they were struggling with the mental illness and now they're at peace, you know, thinking about it that way when you have a conversation with them and not necessarily asking for more details around the means at which they died by suicide. But I don't know, Meredith, do you have anything to add? But I think it's always important when you're talking to someone who's had any kind of loss, it's always important to ask yourself, what do I need to know in order to provide support to that person? Most people don't need to know the means of death. I think there's a very small handful. There's like the county coroner and the medical examiner who need to know the cause of death. Um, and to support someone who um, has had a suicide loss, you just don't need to know that level of detail because knowing that it was a suicide gives you the information you need to be able to offer some slightly different support than you might for a different kind of loss, right? You might need to offer support for different kinds of emotions, different kinds of feelings that come up, that guilt, that anger, different kinds of thoughts. I should have known you know, what could I have done? They're selfish, right? All of these kinds of thoughts and emotions that can come up, they're different. And so knowing it was a suicide can be really helpful in offering that support, but knowing the means really doesn't help you with that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe it is as simple as just training ourselves and others to just open up that question in the beginning. Do you want to talk about any details surrounding this loss? Would it be helpful to talk about? Um, does that feel good or bad? And just let people choose because it, you know, certainly is not one size fits all. And I can imagine, like you said, Brittany, sometimes maybe people do want to talk about that and um, find comfort or community around a particular type of loss. Um, and sometimes not. So can you, backing up a little bit, um, just help us understand a little bit more from, from both of your experiences, just about where people are actually at when they are in a moment of, of crisis and contemplating suicide. Um, what are some of those feelings? One of the most common feelings that I hear is people feeling really, really stuck and in a tremendous amount of pain. And the combination of those two, you know, if you think about touching a hot stove, you don't keep your hand on it, right? You want to take your hand off. And so when we experience intense emotional or physical pain, the human brain wants to get out of it. It wants to escape. And if you can't see a way through the problems that are causing you pain, whether that's a longstanding mental health problem that's just been going on and on and on, and you haven't found a solution that has helped you feel joy again or feel at peace, or if you have really intense um, problems going on in your life that just don't seem like they're going to be resolved, or you don't feel like you have the capacity to resolve them, um, that's when the mind starts looking for other escape routes. And I think that shows up a lot of different ways that the pain people experience shows up in a lot of different forms. But I would say that's probably the most common thread is that combination of feeling like you're in so much pain and you're really, really stuck. Yeah, I'd say that. I, I hear a lot on the talk line from 
individuals that are struggling with suicidal thoughts. And then I'd kind of group them into two groups of people. There's the people who feel that way, feel helpless and have gone through the gamut of help. You know, they have a therapist, they've tried medication, they've done all the things, you know, they've spent years and years working on this and they just don't see a way out because they feel like they've checked all the boxes and they've exhausted their community support. You know, they're, they feel like they've lost all their friends, their family's tired of dealing with their problems um, and they don't want to be a burden on people anymore. I think that's, you know, people feel like I've become a burden on the people that love me and I don't want to be that to them. And then there's the other side where they feel the helplessness, but they haven't actually opened up to anyone that they're feeling that way. And so it's just super, they feel super isolated, super alone. They don't, they don't want to burden their family and friends. So they haven't told anyone that they're even feeling like this. And so it's all getting cooped up into themselves and they're not having an avenue to express that to other people and allow people to help them. So, I mean, both are obviously not, you know, either situation is an ideal, but completely different situations. Mm -hmm. One thing I just wanted to add to that is I hear from a lot of people, I've tried everything. That's like a, one of the most common quotes I think I hear is I've tried everything. And as a mental health professional, I have kind of a unique window into the things that people have tried because I often can see their whole medical record. Um, or I can just talk through with them what they've tried and, and you know, they'll, they'll list off, you know, I've tried this kind of therapy or I've tried um, this kind of medication. And one of the most common things that I hear when I hear I've tried everything is um, people didn't get a full dosage, right? They went to a couple of therapy sessions one time and they didn't like the therapist and they quit. Mm -hmm. um, or they tried one or two medications and had side effects that didn't feel tolerable. And so they um, decided you know, not to go ahead with those medications. And I, all of those experience, I think experiences, I think are very normal, right? I mean, finding a therapist is a little bit like dating, you know, you don't fit with everybody. It totally makes sense that if you, you know, start with a, a type of therapy and it doesn't really bear dividends right away, or it doesn't feel like a good fit, it's totally reasonable to try something else. But I do hear that so commonly, and it, it's really not reflected in their history. And I think that can become more of a feeling than a fact is I've tried everything. I've tried everything. And people tell themselves that, and there are so many different types of therapy. There are so many different types of medication. You know, there are really, really open-ended, very like backed off kinds of therapies that are just very supportive. There are very directive skills-based therapies that tends to be the kind I do and, and everything in between. And so one thing I just always encourage people who feel like they've tried everything is stop and kind of take a different approach. See if you can find a totally different kind of therapist than what you've done before. See if you can find a psychiatrist who is using more creative solutions. You know, we have all these really interesting trials going on with psychedelics and ketamine, and it's really starting to bear some fruit. And so there's, there's a lot of different strategies out there that people haven't tried, even if they feel like they've tried everything. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there because I hear that so commonly and then it just turns out not to be the case, but it's such a powerfully scary feeling to feel like you've tried everything. That's encouraging to hear. I think for a lot of people who, who might have that experience and feel like they really tapped everything can you share, uh, Brittany on the crisis line, just 
what are some of the approaches you're taking and responses you're giving to people in those moments? And um, then Meredith, on your end, you know, you specialize in um, dialectical behavior therapy. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're actually tackling some of these thoughts in the moment of crisis and then beyond? So as a crisis line volunteer, my you know, ultimate goal is very different than Meredith's. I'm talking to them that night. My goal is to keep this person safe tonight. You know, I can't, I'm not thinking about 30 days, 60 days, 90 days from now, whether I have a you know long-term plan for them to get where they need to be. So for me, I'm really focused on coping mechanisms and, you know, in what caused them to call me what, what was going on in their life that day that made them feel these thoughts of suicide, what triggered it, and what are the things that, that they can do to get out of that, that headspace? So is it taking a long walk? Is it reading? Is it listening to music? Is it, you know, exercising? You know, finding the things that people can do to calm themselves and get back into a better state where they're not actively thinking about suicide in that moment is really what my goal is as a crisis line volunteer. And so there's a lot of different apps out there for um, setting this up for yourself where you have different steps, different people you can reach out to. Um, I'm not calling out the the names of them very well right now. I don't know if Meredith knows, but um, basically you're, you're coming up with like a safe plan for yourself. So if I have these thoughts of suicide, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go for a long walk or I'm going to take a bath. The second thing I'm going to do is call this friend and talk to them because that calms me down. So I think for anyone who is struggling with thoughts of suicide, the first step if, is to identify what those things are for you to help you get to a better space and developing that action safe plan for yourself. This might sound really, really oversimplified, but um, for someone who is just disclosing this to someone, what are some of those initial questions that somebody might, or, or reaction, like responses that you found resonate with people or that just a, a couple questions that people could start with if someone has just disclosed that they're contemplating suicide? Well, I think the first thing is to ask them, you know, a lot of times, like no one's going to give that information to you. So like Meredith said, one of the things that we ask people on the line that now I ask even friends is, are you having thoughts of suicide? Not, are you depressed? Are you sad? Kind of like she said, using very distinct language. And one of the misnomers out there is that, oh, if I ask them that it's going to make them think of suicide and they wouldn't have thought of it before. That's completely untrue. This person, if they're really thinking about it, they, they already have that idea in their head. You're not giving them the thought and you're not making them think that that's something that they should be doing. So I would say even before that, asking them that directly and, and maybe prefacing it a lot of times I'll say, Hey, a lot of people who are going through this, you know, who have lost their jobs, a lot of people who, you know, even if they've had a loss themselves have lost their parent, a lot of them think of suicide. Is that something that you're thinking of? So trying to tie it to a relatable thing that other people are going through. If they say yes to that question, you know, I think trying to understand, okay, how serious is it? Is it, are you just having thoughts? Do you have a plan? Do you have something in mind that you would use as a means? Is that available to you at the time? And if, if, if they say, yes, I have pills or, you know, try, just taking it step by step to understand how far have they taken this thought process? If it's just 
oh, I thought about suicide, but I don't think I would ever go through with it. It's just something I think about from time to time. That's kind of like the first level, not, not as serious as the second. Whereas, yes, I've thought about it and I have a plan. This is what I would do. I would take this, go do this. And this is probably what I'm going to do that. And the third is, do they have whatever that, what, whatever they need to complete that plan with them at the time so that you need to intervene. And so those are kind of the three things that I would focus on in the conversation. Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, I hear a lot from veterans who get asked about suicide pretty regularly at the VA. And so it can be, um, it can be tiring for them to answer those questions from, you know, a lot of different healthcare professionals who may be more or less comfortable with the topic is they want to know that you actually have an interest in the question and you care about the answer. They want to know that you care about them. And so as you're going through these questions, you know, tell me what the thoughts have been like, you know, um, have you been thinking about a plan, you know, all these questions. Um, I think it's really important to ground that in um, some communication of concern for them. And it doesn't have to be complex and it doesn't have to be sophisticated, right? Saying, it really worries me that you're having those thoughts and I wanna make sure that we have time to help you solve the problems that you're confronted with right now. Like I, I need to understand kind of what the level of urgency is with these thoughts. And then I, I wanna help you figure out what to do next. Do you mind if I ask you some more questions about you know, plans you've come up with that kind of thing to just preface this, that these questions are not out of worry or not out of panic. Um, mm -hmm. or this like sort of not out of like an intention to, you know, immediately call the police and, and yeah. make a big, um, big thing of it, but because you actually care about them and because you want to know, um, what's going on. And so I think validating their experience, even if you're not agreeing with them, right? If they say, I'm going through this terrible problem, there's no solution. You don't have to say, oh my gosh, you're right, there's no solution. But you can say, that sounds really scary. It sounds like you feel like there's no solution. I can imagine I would be scared if I felt like there were no solutions, right? So really validating the feelings that they're have, having can really help people feel more at ease, feel like you're actually listening, you actually care about them. And honestly, you know, all things aside, one of the most profound things we can offer is caring. And it matters a lot um, to somebody who feels really isolated, feels like they can't solve their problems, feels like maybe nobody cares about them um, or that they're a burden, knowing that you really care about them, even if you've only been talking to them for 10 minutes, right? Yeah. In the crisis line, I talk yeah. to people frequently that I have no relationship with, and they're willing to hear that. Nobody's, you know, very rarely people say, ah, oh, you don't really care every mm -hmm. once in a while, but it's not hard to show you care for someone, right? It mm -hmm. just takes a few sentences. Um, so that's one thing I would definitely offer is when you're asking someone about suicide, make sure that you're just showing that you care about them. The other thing I would add to that is don't jump to problem solving, you know, like I think our behavior as humans is to try to fix things, you know, and as so if someone tells you, oh, I'm struggling with this, you know, we're like, oh, what if, have you tried this? What if you did this? And it's like, that's not going to be helpful for them. I'm sure they've thought about these things. It's just like Meredith said, really being there for them, validating how they're feeling and saying, yeah, that sounds really hard. Like, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Like, how can I help? Not just jumping to, oh, well, you should just go see a therapist and that would fix this. Or if you exercise more, you'd be in a better space. You know, I think that's something we want to do because we want to feel like we're helping them. Mm -hmm. And so that we're not walking away from the conversation feeling like 
we didn't give them advice. And I think in this instance, this is not one of those situations where you want to be giving advice. Yeah. So an assessment of urgency initially and seriousness to really try to understand where someone is at in their suicidal ideation, validation, and the caring. I think that is really important that you said that. I think people are looking for the magic word or the magic thing. And that that is the thing that just engaging, caring, actually connecting and listening is is the magic stuff that is making people feel seen and moving through them through a moment like that in a lot of times. You can definitely offer support. And I think there is a time for problem solving if you get permission, you know? So one of the things that is really hard to do in this country is get access to mental health care. Not everybody's insurance covers it if they even have insurance. And if it does, often what the insurance company will give you is a list of 50 providers to call who may or may not be taking patients at any given time. And so if you do think that this person would benefit from getting connected with mental health care, ask them if they're open to that, if they've tried it before, and if you can help them. And I think one of the most valuable things I've seen loved ones offer is like, let me call those 50 providers and ask them if they're taking new patients, because the last thing you need when you're incredibly depressed and overwhelmed with your problems is to be calling 50 people and not even knowing if you'll get a call back. So I think there are really concrete things that you can do to help. Just ask and ask for permission, um, go through different problem solving options and, um, and just make sure that you have buy-in from them to help you with that. Yeah. I think we're trying to remove some of those barriers is huge and, you know, care that's affordable, that actually couldn't be sustainable and doing some of that legwork on the front end, moving to this problem solving stage, at, at what point do you think that that is, so you said actually asking for permission is something that you would recommend to people? Like, you know, do you want help moving forward from this or do you just want to talk about it is that an explicit question that that you're asking or suggesting um or at what point are you trying to inspire or give someone you know some renewed sense of purpose in their life so there's a time and a place for everything <laughs> um and when people are really in acute crisis, right, when they feel like their head's on fire, their emotions are running really high, it's very, very difficult to problem solve. Um, if you if you think about like when you were in the most physical pain of your life, I always think about when I was in labor, right? I mean, you could have asked me a very simple question, like, how do you get from your house to the hospital? And I would have not been able to answer it. I would have been annoyed at you for asking. I would have thought it was an outrageous question. I was just not in a position to, to be able to answer a question like that. But, you know, on any other given day, of course, I can answer that question. And so as a therapist, um, I'm frequently in this dance between um, navigating crises and then sort of pushing forward with what I think of as a life worth living agenda every time I have a lull between crises. So if somebody's calling a crisis line, probably it's because they're in crisis, right? It's probably because they're their emotions are running really high and they are in an acute sense of, I can't do this. I don't know what to do next. And so that's when that taking a step back, listening, understanding, and just helping someone bring their emotions down a little bit is really, really valuable. And listening does that, right? It takes the, it takes the panic out of feeling like you're alone. 
It gives you a little bit of time to just sort of work through whatever the crisis is. Crises don't last forever. They're usually really short. There's actually research showing that suicidal crises often are under an hour and in most cases are under 10 minutes. And wow. so if you can kind of help someone spin through um, whatever really intense emotions they're feeling or even physical pain that they're feeling, if you can get to the other side of that 10 minutes or that hour, they're gonna be in a much better um, sort of cognitive and emotional state to be able to problem solve. And those are the spaces where as a therapist, I'm coming in and saying, okay, here's our set of problems. Here are the challenges that are getting in the way of solving those problems. We're just gonna start knocking them off one by one. Um, and we're gonna get, a, you know, we're gonna get a list. We're gonna triage. We're gonna figure out which ones we do first. Oh, we're in a crisis again, totally backing off of that. Dealing with the crisis, helping the emotions come down, using some skills actively, like really directing someone and using some skills to manage that crisis. Um, whether that's, you know, breathing exercises or, um, you know, going for a run or, or whatever it is, we're just going to bring the crisis down. Okay, now we're a little bit calmer. Now we're going to drive forward again on um, trying to build a life worth living. I think that's super helpful to hear. I think, you know, it's a very overwhelming experience, I think, on both ends for people who are receiving um, that information about someone that they care about and who maybe are not equipped to in that moment respond um, to be thinking like, how do I make someone not suicidal versus how do I manage this for 10 minutes to one hour and move us to the next hour? It feels maybe a lot more manageable. Do you have any feedback or just thoughts around the supporters of people who are in those moments? And yourselves, I mean, it's just such an intense line of work and how you care for yourself um, and the pressure of those moments as you navigate this work. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, like Meredith said, what I'm doing on the crisis line is very acute, right? And this is with strangers, with people I don't know. You know, when I've interacted with people in my personal life, you know, I treat that very differently. You know, I have more information and I know where these people are at. I mean, I think every relationship is different. Every situation is different. And I would just say, recognize your own capacity as a person. Like if you don't think you can be that person for them, figure out who that person is, you know? And so I think just like recognizing your own limits too is okay. Like knowing like I can't be what this person needs and, but I'll, I'll help them find that um, and not putting all the pressure on yourself. Cause that can be a lot of, of stuff to hold on to, especially if you're not a trained therapist. That's all, you know, it's like, I feel like Meredith trying to give us all a crash course in therapy, you know, that's, a, it's a lot for people. And, you know, a lot of people can't, can't be that person. So I think just showing them you care in whatever way you can and helping them find those resources, if you can't be that resource for them. Mm -hmm. I really agree. And I think working with someone as a therapist is such a different experience to being a family member of someone who's struggling, which I have been too. And I struggle just as much as any other family member. The words come more easily, right? Are you thinking about suicide? I have absolutely no, no problem asking that. I've asked it so many times, but, but everything else, it's being a family member is a 24 seven job. Whereas, you know, when I'm doing therapy, I'm usually seeing people once a week, I might be talking to them a little bit more regularly. And so I can do my own self-care in the spaces in between. Mm -hmm. I can make sure that I'm taking care of myself. I can make sure that I'm, you know, taking vacations and, and getting coverage when I need to and meeting my own capacity. 
but as a family member, as a loved one, you don't have those clear turnoff points at the end of the day. And so it can be a lot harder to kind of find the boundaries of what you are capable of and what is going to burn you out versus what feels like you're kind of living along, you know, alongside your values and taking care of, of people you care about. And I think mostly you find those boundaries through trial and error, right? Of overextending yourself, realizing that you've, you're taking on more than you can and then backing off a little bit. And so, um, you know, all I can say is it's messy and, um, and those boundaries are really important because if you fully burn yourself out, you're not going to be able to help them. Um, and you know, then you'll be dealing with your own set of struggles. So make sure you have your own supports. Um, if you're, if you're a care provider, if you are, um, a loved one of someone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts or a really profound mental health problem, it is hard. Um, and it's worth having your own support just to make sure that, um, you have support in finding those boundaries. Can you tell us a little bit more about dialectical behavior therapy and what that looks like in your practice? Sure. Um, so dialectical behavior therapy or DBT um, is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which is kind of a, a class of therapies that tends to be more skills focused. It tends to be more present focused. Um, and the idea with DBT is that you're trying to help people dance that dance between navigating crises and um, and pursuing their lives worth living. And there's a few different ways that we do that. And one is to teach really concrete skills. A lot of us didn't learn how to regulate our emotions when we were kids. Um, our parents didn't teach us or they didn't know how. Um, we don't learn it in school, which one day I hope will change. Um, but a lot of us just go through life kind of experiencing strong emotions and not necessarily really knowing what to do with them. And sometimes we learn those skills by accident and sometimes we just don't. And so DBT um, really explicitly teaches um, skills to help people tolerate really intense emotions. So get through it without hurting yourself, without killing yourself, without making a suicide attempt, um, but just sort of surviving, right? Those, those safety skills that um, Brittany was talking about um, to just get through the moment. This is the kind of stuff you learn about on a crisis line. If you call, right, you might get someone who coaches you through, let's do a breathing exercise. Let's stick your face in ice water for 30 seconds. Um, and other skills that really help kind of bring down those emotional crises. And then the other thing we're doing in DBT is we're figuring out um, what are some ways to increase joy in your life? What are the things that really matter to you that you wanna be spending more time on? And what are the barriers getting in the way of that? Is it that your communication skills aren't really up to the challenges that you're experiencing um, or your emotions kind of torpedo your communication skills when they run really hot? Um, is it that um, you're really not doing anything that you enjoy and it's hard to sort of find things that you enjoy? Is it that you're not doing things that are really along alongside your values? Um, do you want to be helping people and you're just not? Um, do you want to be getting out into the world and you're kind of staying home and isolating? And so we're teaching really clear strategies to help people um, manage those intense emotions so that they feel more in control of them and they don't feel like the emotions are driving the bus, but they're really driving the bus and their, their goals are driving the bus. 
So it's a really cool therapy. Um, there are some um, folks in the community who will who will teach DBT skills in a group. And so you can just attend the group. I know a lot of folks who um, maybe they're not suicidal, but they just kind of want to learn how to manage their emotions more effectively. And so they'll take a group like that. Um, and then some people really benefit from the full program of having an individual therapist, having the group where you're learning skills. Um, we provide phone coaching. So if somebody's, you know, about to have a difficult conversation with a partner or just had a difficult conversation with a partner, then they can call the therapist and say, Hey, this didn't go so well, or I'm, I'm panicking and I used a skill. It's not working. And they get that live in the moment coaching on how to use the skills, um, to just be more effective. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned, you know, that different things work for different people and to try something radically different if if whatever you've tried hasn't been working to that what are some other methods um that are commonly practiced that other people could look into let's say maybe they have tried this approach and want to try something very different anything else that you might suggest people look into uh there are more types of therapies than there are stars in the sky um so i think um you know there's such a wide range um one thing that we really commonly see in at the va is people who've experienced trauma and have a lot of pain and a lot of suffering around that and the the number one treatment for that is to talk about it and there are specific types of of therapy that we offer and there's therapies called prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy um, that can help people process a trauma. But the challenge is a lot of people really shy away from that um, because they don't want to talk about it because it's probably the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And one of the things that we really find is that you can do other types of therapy um, and maybe get some more control over your emotions. You can, you know, get some strategies to help, you know, manage stressors. Um, but that trauma really just keeps popping up. Um, and, and there's just no substitute for doing a trauma-focused therapy. And so um, that's probably the most common, in my context, um, that's probably the most common conversation I have with people is I've tried a bunch of things, but the trauma just keeps popping up and, you know, I can't sleep and, um, you know, I'm having flashbacks and there just isn't a substitute for um, tackling the trauma directly and, and getting that therapy. And I think most people who do that really benefit and, and these are really strong evidence-based therapies um, that really, really help. And people, um, they're painful while you're going through it. And when you come out on the other side, you know, a lot of times people really see those symptoms go down in a way that other types of therapies are just not going to be able to do. And medications really don't do as well. The other thing I think I hear a lot is um, insomnia makes everything terrible. <laughs> people really, really struggle if they can't sleep and it becomes this really vicious cycle with mental health concerns that um, when you're having a mental health problem, it usually impacts sleep. And um, when you're not sleeping, it really exacerbates the mental health problem and it makes every symptom you have worse under the best of circumstances, we don't do very well when we don't sleep. Mm -hmm. So there are um, a lot of sleep hygiene strategies you can use. Um, there are medications you can try. And there's a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That's also pretty painful to go through and incredibly, incredibly effective at helping treat insomnia. So um, for people who experience insomnia, I actually really encourage them to target that directly um, because 
it often feels like a result of the mental health condition or a result of the stress, and yet it can really exacerbate um, those experiences as well. So that's something that I recommend targeting as well. Mm -hmm. So to get into another one of your areas of specialty, we know that 54% of firearm deaths were suicides and 53% of all suicides uh, were by firearms. And I was, I mean, I was really shocked to see that statistic that's pretty staggering. So you specialize in lethal mean safety. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that and um, in general and as it pertains maybe to your work with the VA as well? I would love to. Um, so lethal means safety is the idea that when people have access to lethal means, when they are in a suicidal crisis, which I mentioned before, suicidal crises can last anywhere from um, an hour to 10 minutes, um, you know, and, and it's rare for a suicidal crisis to last longer than that. And so during that short period of time, when you have access to lethal means, um, people are much more likely to make an attempt. Um, and if the lethal means are firearms, they're much more likely to die in that attempt. There is a statistic that um, something on the order of about 90% of um, suicide attempts by means other than firearm survive. So if you um, use a method other than firearms, um, in 99 or 90% of cases, you're going to survive that suicide attempt. Um, but if you use firearms in a suicide attempt, about 90% of those attempts result in a fatality. There's no opportunity to change your mind. There's no opportunity for a rescue. There's no opportunity for someone to find you and call 911. Um, that's just, it's just immediate. And so firearms are particularly lethal. They're highly available in the U.S. And so what we want is for when people are in a suicidal crisis for them not to have a loaded gun, um, you know, sitting in their nightstand because that 10 minute crisis could turn into um, a suicide death. And so um, the idea of lethal means safety is that we try to just reduce access when people are feeling suicidal. Ideally one day, this is why I'm so excited you asked about this. One day we want people to talk about firearm access and mental health, the way we talk about, um, you know, taking someone's keys when they're intoxicated. Mm -hmm. So if you have a friend come over and they have a little bit too much wine, it's awkward to ask for their keys, but it's pretty socially acceptable at this point to say, hey, why don't you stay on the couch? You can leave tomorrow morning. You're not taking away their keys for the rest of their life, right? Just because they had too much to drink one night. It's just while they're in this more acute period, while they're not, um, they're not going to be as effective at driving, you want to reduce access to a car. And we want people to talk about mental health the same way. So, you know, if you have a buddy who's going through a really tough time, we want it to be normal to say, hey, I understand you're going through a really tough time. Can I, do you want me to hold on to your firearms for you? Um, or do you want me to help you find a place where you can keep them? Laws across states vary in terms of how to do those, those short-term transfers. But at the end of the day, getting that conversation started and expressing some concern and saying, why don't we get them out of your house for a little while? It opens the doors for a lot of creativity. I've had people take the firing pin out of a gun and give it to a neighbor, even if they couldn't give the gun to the neighbor. Mm -hmm. work without a firing pin. I've had people lock up their firearms and give the key to someone else or um, put the, you know, put the firearm in a storage facility and keep the key at home. 
Um, and I've even had people just lock them up and put the key in one part of the house and the firearm in another part of the house. Um, at the end of the day, we know that having a firearm in your home increases the likelihood that someone in your home will die by suicide fivefold. You're five times more likely to die by suicide if there is a firearm in your home. And so stepping away from any kind of issues around, you know, Second Amendment rights or um, gun laws, all we really want is to really make sure that people are talking about this and make sure that people are comfortable talking about it and saying, we just know that when you're feeling more suicidal, having a gun around the house is a risk. So can we just reduce access? Um, mm -hmm. So I really hope that to empower people to have that conversation, just like you would if somebody um, were planning to drive home and they'd had a little too much to drink. It's so, so important. And I'm wondering if you, well, it seems like that's also a um, decent indicator as part of the assessment period of someone's seriousness in their suicidal ideation. If they're unwilling to relinquish or make some steps around a firearm, do you, you're shaking your head? No, not necessarily. No. Yeah, I think firearms are, firearms are complicated, right? Yeah. Um, we have certainly in this country, a lot of people who have firearms um, that they keep for protection. Yeah. Um, the folks I work with, a lot of them, you know, firearms are part of their heritage. They're part of um, how they grew up. They're part of how they connect with their community. Um, and I've had folks who were very depressed and they said, going to the firing range is the only thing I enjoy. It's the only time I see people in my week. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> how am I going to do this? Sure. Right? Like, I don't want them around a firearm right now. And also like, I really want them to enjoy their lives. So I think, um, you know, people who've experienced trauma, people who live in unsafe neighborhoods, I, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why people hold on to firearms. And so if somebody's not willing to relinquish one, that doesn't phase me. Um, I really just want to get on the same page with them about being concerned about their safety um, and making sure that they are making a clear headed choice about that. Most people don't realize um, the degree to which crises can come and go quickly, and they don't realize the statistics around having a firearm in the home for the whole household. Um, and so sometimes when you can start that conversation, um, you know, if they say I'm worried about a home invasion, I usually say something along the lines of, okay, you're worried about your safety. I'm worried about your safety. We definitely both are worried about your safety. Let's think about at any given, on any given day, what's the likelihood of a home invasion versus a suicide? You're telling me you're feeling really suicidal and you're going through a depressive episode and things have been really hard right now. What do you think the likelihood is that your risk of suicide is a little bit higher right now than a home invasion? Maybe on another day, a risk of home invasion is higher, right? And maybe then we bring the, the firearms home. But we kind of want to encourage a flexible approach to, to firearm storage that kind of accommodates changes in risk. And so sometimes I'll get a little bit more, um, a little bit more traction if I talk about it in that way, um, rather than sort of implying that they have to get rid of their firearms completely forever. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say that, that sort of being reluctant to get rid of a firearm necessarily indicates anything other than maybe a little bit more conversation is warranted. And you might, you might just hit a wall with some folks and that's okay. Um, then you work on some other coping strategies to help um, reduce their risk as well. Yeah. Do you take a similar approach um, with substances in terms of discussions around 
potentially removing medications or alcohol when someone is um, expressing suicidal thoughts? I always ask about access to firearms if somebody is telling me that they're going in and out of um, suicidal crisis. Um, I also always ask, is there some, you know, Brittany was saying earlier, you always ask about a plan, right? And so one of the questions I ask is, is there some kind of object that in your home is um, my colleagues and I refer to them as talismanic objects, right? Sometimes people have something, they have a particular um, item, a scarf, a, um, you know, a leash, uh, some kind of rope, right? They have some kind of item that they're really specifically kind of fixated on. This is what I would use, a certain medication. Um, and so I always ask about those. I ask about what kinds of plans have gone through their mind. And those are the things I target. I'm always going to ask about firearms just because of the statistics, right? Um, but for any given person, they're going to have, um, if they've thought about a plan, they're going to have other objects that I'm also going to target. And I'm going to have the same conversation. How do we reduce access to those pills? How do we reduce access to that particular, um, that car um, when you're feeling suicidal? Maybe you just don't drive for a little while. Um, maybe, um, you know, if they're thinking about the Golden Gate Bridge, right, we're in San Francisco, um, I say maybe you take the ferry for a little while, right? Maybe crossing the bridge this month is just not not the thing to do. And so you can have that conversation with any kind of um, means that people have thought about. I just tend to have it with firearms no matter what. So moving to, into postvention. So people who have experienced a loss by suicide, can you help us understand the range of emotions that people may experience following a loss in this way? I mean, I think it's typical, it's like typical grief with any loss, but just compounded with feeling alone, like you can't share with anyone and probably feeling anger towards the person. Um, and then maybe the guilt is even more so because you feel like there's something you could have done to prevent it. Um, I think the thing that was the hardest for me was like just feeling the alone piece, you know, like no one understands this. I don't have anyone to reach out to. I think at the time um, when I lost my brother, I remembered, oh, there was this girl I worked with and I'd heard she lost her brother to suicide and I never talked to her about it because, you know, at the time I avoided the conversation. Um, we didn't have a close relationship. And so I reached out to her just for some semblance of community. And so I think like, as a community, we need to be just there, just as there for people who have lost loved ones to suicide as we are for people who have lost loved ones to any other um, type of death. And so just, you know, checking in with them, making sure they're okay, you know, being there for them, being okay to talk about it, not feeling awkward, um, you know, checking in with them on the death anniversary, on the, uh, on their birthdays, you know, those, the holidays are really hard for anyone who's lost people, but I think just like you said, the kind of active, not just within the first month, but in the year and the years after that, um, this is something this person's going to be living with and just really trying to be there for them in whatever way they may need. But, you know, I think just not helping them to not feel alone and like that they're going through this by themselves. I think a really common um, sort of thought pattern that I hear is people trying to understand what happened and where they could have intervened 
which is not unlike how we experience trauma, right? I mean, um, there's always this impulse to kind of Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback and try to go back and fix it in your mind, even though the deed is done. Um, and I think that can be really tortuous for family members and friends to try to kind of go back and try to, try to, um, try to fix it in their minds, try to think of what they could have seen or, or, um, what they could have said. And I, I always, um, just recommend that people kind of, you know, it's, it's inevitable. It is a thought pattern that is totally inevitable. And to the extent that you can try to let that go and just sit with the feelings, right. Just sit with how hard this is and how painful it is and that you weren't able to stop it. And that's a really hard reality to sit with. And that's the only path to healing, right. Is, is being able to say, yes, this did happen. Even if I could have done something, I didn't. You know, I, I didn't know to, or I didn't know better, or I didn't have the skill, um, whatever reason it didn't happen. And there's no guarantee that it would have helped anyway. And, um, and so I think sitting with those emotions and sitting with the sadness and, and the helplessness of that is um, ultimately really important. Um, and hopefully, you know, you have people who love you, who can help you sit with that and who can tolerate it themselves. Yeah, I think the other thing that we had talked about in a previous conversation is just, you know, when you lose someone and, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of the people we lost, right, they're, they're older, you know, and then we'll talk about the happy memories and all the things they did. And, and even people that we lose that are younger that aren't due to suicide, people will want to know, oh, what were they like? Tell me about them. But for some reason, when someone dies by suicide, it's like Meredith said, like, oh, what happened? What led up to this? what were that what were, what were they going through it's like all the negative around them instead of kind of celebrating the life that they had so it's like if you have someone that's lost someone to suicide ask them about the person like ask them about the happy memories like they want to remember those people too and they want to remember all the great things about them and that just gives them comfort to think about those things so you know trying to do that with them rather than focusing on what just immediately happened to cause them to die so suddenly mhm and I think we touched on, you know, just removing expectation that anyone is going to respond or grieve in a particular way around a loss by suicide. Some of the some of the feelings that came up in the group conversation were guilt, shame, anger, confusion, apathy, um, feeling embarrassed for being oblivious um, or unaware. Um, Meredith, you relief talked about relief. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you just reiterate what we had talked about around that and, and how we can kind of just normalize feeling whatever people are feeling in response to this? Yeah. Sometimes relief is what you feel. If, if, um, the person who died is someone who's been, um, in a lot of pain for a long time, or you've had a challenging relationship with them. I mean, this can always come up when we lose people, right? I mean, difficult people, um, difficult people die too. And, um, and we all have difficult relationships. And so I think the other thing is all of these emotions can cycle through in the space of a day, right? You might feel joy, you might feel relief, anger, fear, shame, all of those things over the course of minutes or hours. And um, that can be really disorienting. It can feel like some of those emotions are allowed, but some of them are wrong and I shouldn't have this. 
Um, and the reality is you do, right? People do, um, because it's a complicated experience losing someone to suicide. And so of course you're gonna have complicated emotions and some of them may not make any sense um, and that's okay. Um, and it's one of the things I really appreciate about support programs that help connect you with someone else who's lost someone by suicide because having someone else say, oh yeah, I rode that roller coaster too can be so important. Um, AFSP is an organization that has that through healing conversations. There's a um, program called TAPS, Tragedy Assistance, um, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors that also provides a similar kind of peer support for people who have lost someone by suicide who um, was in the veteran or military community. Um, and I think those programs, I, of course, I'm always gonna you know, invite people to therapy, right? And I think there's, there's something about being able to talk to someone else who is a lost survivor like Brittany and like these healing conversations programs because it really helps you feel like you're not crazy, you're not alone in this, and it is really complicated and you are gonna have a wild ride. Um, and that wild ride will trend down and over time you're gonna feel like you can breathe again. Um, and like those emotions are starting to settle and you're, and you're able to settle a little bit more in those happy memories and, and just feel sad. And some of those more intense, um, more painful emotions will subside. So I really advocate those programs a lot. Brittany, can you speak a little more specifically to healing conversations and what you've seen resonate with people in those programs and the approach that you're taking? Sure. Yeah. So again, AFSB has this program that I lead healing conversations and it's essentially volunteers like myself who have lost someone to suicide, who feel like they're enough removed from the experience that they can kind of resource for other people. And so someone will come find us on the website, submit a form, tell us about, you know, it may be like the day after they lost this person. It may be a month, it may be years from then. They'll put some information about the loss and then they'll get connected with our local chapter. So if they're in the Bay Area, they get connected with me and I'll connect them with one of our volunteers for either a phone call. It could be an in-person meeting. And really it's just like Meredith said, just an opportunity for someone to feel like they have someone to talk to who's been through the same thing. So a lot of times these people, they haven't found anyone who's been through a loss like this. So it can just be really cathartic and um, therapeutic to talk to someone who understands what they're feeling and, you know, can say like, yeah, I'm really mad at them. And I don't understand why they did this. And this was my mom. This was my brother. This was my child. You know, we have various ranges of losses and we have volunteers who've been all through that. So we really try to connect people with people who've been through similar losses. So if we have someone that lost a child, we'll try to connect them with another volunteer who's also lost their child. And it's not therapy, you know, it's a one-time conversation, but it's that first step for them to really talk about it for the first time with someone else openly. You know, a lot of these people say like, I haven't even, our family's not even talking about it. Um, so I think having programs like that are really important. And then we'll give them resources at the end of the conversation if they want. Like we'll say, here's some local support groups. Here's some good books that we've found or helpful. Here's some podcasts. Here's, you know, some therapists in the area, um, if that's something you're interested in. But it's really just kind of getting them comfortable and being there for them in their time of need. 
back to giving people some vocabulary, I wanted to just dive into some of those things, the, the do's and don'ts of what to say and not say and give people some ideas about what might be helpful and unhelpful for someone who has lost someone by suicide. And I'll list off a couple that we came up with in our group conversation, um, but would love to just have you add on anything that you think might be helpful for our community. So some of them that came out is if, if you need to talk about how angry you are, I'm here for that. If you want to just be sad and guilty, I'm here for that. Uh, there are no wrong feelings or reactions. Meredith, to what you were just talking about, it won't always feel this unbearable. These feelings will evolve, kind of trying to help people manage or give a realistic expectation that this isn't going to go away. This is going to be with you forever, but it will it will become more manageable. Another idea we talked about is this is a really hard topic and I'm up for it. You know, like we discussed earlier, modeling your capacity for the intensity of this conversation and relieving people of this idea that they're a burden. We had talked about, Thea and I had talked about an idea like for a card, it would be an honor or privilege to help you hold this pain beyond just I'm up for it. Like it would mean so much to me if you would trust me with, with how you're actually feeling and the, the honesty and intensity of this moment for you. I'll just open it up from there. Some things that you have found really helpful or unhelpful in these conversations. That's hard for me because I don't really have a list of phrases that I like go to like that. I think for me, it's more just like being, being there and asking questions like more, you know, I've noticed you're feeling this way, you know, let's find help for you. I'm here for you. Um, you know, talking about like the coping strategies and like just trying to keep questions open-ended, I think I, I, and not trying to guide them towards like a path of healing. Um, and I think it's more about like what I talked about, just the checking in, you know, it's like, for me, it's like the frequency and just letting them know I'm there. So like every week, you know, I'm, you're going to get a phone call from me and I'm going to check in on you and see how you're doing. Not necessarily that I've like used certain questions to, to ask you, but just, you know, my presence is there in some way. Um, that's like my approach as a person. Um, but that's just my style. So I don't know if Meredith has other thoughts, but yeah, I think um, I think just being really real, I think, is the only thing I can recommend. And if you don't know what to say or you feel scared to open the topic, just saying, like, I don't know what to say. And I feel nervous talking about this because it seems really intense and like I really want to be here for you. Um, I think people respond well to that level of authenticity. Um, and everybody knows you don't know what to say. I mean, anybody who's lost someone to suicide or is having suicidal thoughts, like, you know, if you're not a mental health provider, they don't expect you to be, and they know that, and, and they know you. And so um, being real seems like the biggest gift you can offer. And then if you say something wrong, you kind of, you know, everybody's kind of like, yep, yeah. <laughs> you said you were probably going to say something wrong, and you did, and we can yeah. all, you know, move past it. Um, yeah, I think the lesson is, is like, say something just to be there and let them know you're there rather than don't not say nothing at all and saying the wrong thing, because the absence of a person in a loss is so much harder than like 
having someone try with you and screw up and say the wrong thing, but you know, deep down they care and that like they made the effort. And I think that's something that I noticed when I lost my brother, it was like, who was there and reached out to me, even if they didn't know what to say and just sat there with me while I cried versus who completely avoided me because they didn't know what to say and they felt uncomfortable with it. You know, just the, the disparity between those two approaches was huge in my eyes. And so I think it's less about what you say and more about just being there for them. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing I would add to that is when I've had losses, I wasn't, I didn't always expect who was going to be the person who was able to come in and be and do that. Um, you know, what Brittany just described, like, it has surprised me who reached out and was the person who was there when I cried and was there to see me really messy. Um, it wasn't always my best friends or my closest family. It was often someone who just kind of had the capacity to do that. And they were there at the right time in the right moment and expressed caring for me in the right way, um, or just expressed caring for me at all. And so I think if you're not in that inner circle, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not a person who can provide that. Um, they may not want to talk to someone outside their inner circle and that's fine. And if people decline your help, I, you know, that's, I think that's always fine. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't get yourself into contortions if you're like, I don't know if I'm the right person to offer this. I don't know if I know the right thing to say. Um, I think like Brittany said, it's better to offer and be the person who's willing to break the silence and, and have them say they don't want your help than to not offer. Mm-hmm. And it's a great reminder just of the opportunity that we all have. I wouldn't think of that necessarily for some people that I'm not super close to, but I've had the same experience where really unexpectedly, um, people I'm not close to have really impacted me. And, um, so to just not underestimate our ability to, um, impact people in a pretty profound way when they're in a moment of crisis, even with something really small. So a couple closing questions here for you. So can you give us, we've, we touched on all kinds of things, um, but can you give us three practical tips, like three takeaways, if you were talking about two specific categories, so someone who might be struggling with suicidal thoughts today, what would be a couple just really actionable, tangible things that you might suggest for someone who is listening, who is in that moment right now? Find someone you can talk to doesn't need to be a therapist, you know, find someone you can talk to about what you're going through and find support and, and figure out what those coping mechanisms are for dealing with the acute episodes, you know, figure out what really makes you happy, even if it's not all the time, maybe it's a really small amount of time that you feel happy, but try to pinpoint what, what's going on in your life and what's triggering those happiness occurrences where you're not feeling the stress and anxiety and depression and try to increase those bit by bit as much as you can. I agree with that completely. Um, and I think I would add, um, take one step at a time. Um, often problems feel really overwhelming, um, when you look at them, you know, in their entirety. And sometimes if you can, you know, just take one step forward, not only does breaking down the problem make it feel more achievable to solve it? But also you start to build confidence as you solve one step after another, and you start to feel like you have a little bit more control over the situation. Um, So breaking down problems into small pieces and just taking one at a time and getting some support at each step 
whether that's, you know, from anyone in your life or, or professional. And then if you're hitting those moments where you're really going into crisis, I think use crisis lines, right? I mean, use 988, use um, whatever, you know, use apps. Um, Virtual Hope Box is a nice app. I think there's a number of apps that have safety plans built into them. We use um, Mindfulness Coach, which is a free app that the um, VA and DOD uh, created, as well as PTSD Coach. They have a whole bunch of um, coping strategies for strong emotions built into them. And so if you're noticing yourself going into those crises, it's okay to distract in a moment of crisis, right? It's okay to use these coping strategies that aren't going to solve any problems, but they'll just help you get through the moment. So you can clear your head and, and tackle the problem when you're a little clearer. Awesome. And same question, but for someone who is trying to support someone who is struggling with suicide, three, um, three recommendations for them in this moment. I would say reach out to the person, but then don't forget about them later. I'd say it's a long, it's a long game plan with suicide loss, unfortunately. Um, you know, I'm seven years out and my brother's birthday and his death anniversary is really hard days for me. And I remember those friends that reach out. It means a lot to me that still text me on those days. Um, and yeah. And then like, kind of like I talked earlier, just asking about the person, like, I think the biggest fear for me is like forgetting them, you know, cause they're not here anymore. And so asking about them, sharing photos, sharing memories, just being that outlet for them to be able to talk about them is really super helpful at any stage of the loss. Ali, are you, um, I had a thought that left my mind. So are you asking about how to help someone who's had a loss or how to help someone who is supporting someone who's having suicidal thoughts? We can speak to both. <laughs> yeah. Either, either one that you'd like to respond to, but would love your recommendations for both. I think for supporting someone who's had a suicide loss, um, I, I love Brittany's comment about just that consistent showing up and not just sort of forgetting after the first week. I think that's really common with grief in general is that um, about a month out from a loss, the support kind of dries up and people aren't done grieving after a month. And so um, showing that support over time, I think is really valuable. Um, and, and making space for all kinds of messy emotions um, is really valuable as well. For somebody who's providing support for someone who's struggling with suicide um, or suicidal thoughts, I think one phrase we use pretty often is just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't do anything. And um, you may not be able to just keep that person alive. Um, by pure grit, or you may not say the perfect thing that's going to save them or get them connected with the perfect support that's going to save them. Um, there's no guarantees in life. And I think that uncertainty can cause a lot of people to, um, to give up, right? If you know I can't perfectly protect this, this person, then I'm not, there's nothing I can do. And that's really not the case. There's still a lot you can do. Um, you can show caring, you can help um, get people connected with professional help. You can help them solve their problems. You can just breathe with them and teach them coping skills um, or explore apps with them and, and practice coping skills together. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to show that you care about someone 
um, that are really, really impactful. And if there's anything I've learned um, being in this work is that you just, just like you don't know what's going to be the thing that kind of sends someone into a crisis, you also don't know what's going to be the thing that saves their life. And, and so I've heard stories that just blew my mind where someone said, I just happened to run into this stranger who said, oh, let me help you carry your groceries. And it like completely turned my life around. You just never know, mm -hmm. right? It's usually not something that, that simple, but you just don't know what's going to be the thing that that person needs to hear. And so you try things um, and you show that you care. Yeah, I love that. Okay, my last, my very last question or just opportunity that I want to open up is if there's anyone that you have lost to suicide that you would like to take a moment to acknowledge or share a memory or celebrate in any way. So I can share this memory just because I um, am walking next month um, in the out of the darkness walk for my brother and um, our team name is Derek's Krispy Kreme and Vinegar team. Everyone's always like, that's so weird. Um, he loved vinegar. Like our whole family, we were, we're Italian. We like vinegar. It's it's weird, but he like took it to another level where he would like actively drink different kinds of vinegar and like, you know, had a palate for it. So one Christmas, my uncle got him like five different bottles of vinegar and um, we just always laugh about it. So it's like a, now on his birthday, we all take vinegar shots in his memory. So it's like something we do to like, it's so weird. I know That's <laughs> we awesome. do to memorialize him. That's a memory I can share about my brother. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Meredith, anything you'd like to add from your community? I think one of the challenges with being a mental health provider is that you can't talk about your losses um, when you've lost patients um, because it's confidential. And so um, I will just say um, that I feel those losses very deeply um, and um, I think of them often. And so they're out there um, listening and hopefully knowing that they're, they're being thought about, even if they felt pretty alone. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for being here and for the incredible work you do, uh, the incredible work you do over time that is so incredibly uh, difficult and taxing. Uh, we appreciate you and are so honored to be able to share your experience and knowledge with our community and help evoke more empathy and compassion and understanding around this issue. Thank you so much for the work you're doing to try to make this something that people feel empowered to talk about. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For support with an immediate crisis, call or text 988 or text TALK to 741-741. To learn more about the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention or find a chapter near you, visit AFSP.org. They have great resources for treatment, loss support groups, advocacy, and more. You can also visit the episode notes for direct links to these sites and other information mentioned in this episode. And finally, if you or a loved one needs access to a month of free therapy, you can visit betterhelp.com thoughtfulhuman.